At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America. NMLS 407249. Equal housing lender. Loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. When I saw this wall garden, when I first came to look at the house, I, I did rather fall in love with it. It's 1986, and Prince Charles is showing a journalist around Highgrove Estate. He has many residences, but Highgrove is home. The gardens, his pride and joy. And then arbors in the middle, with roses and wisteria. He's cultivated the grounds with his own hands, and, well, lots of help. He's planted fruit trees, gifted to him and Princess Diana on their wedding day. Tunnels of peas and beans, and an extensive herb garden. The herb side is, 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 is enjoyable, because there's an awful lot to learn about that. And also, it's rather amusing trying to, to invent new suits and things. He plucks a leaf from an overflowing bed of lovage and smells it. Then he moves on to his favourite place to sit in the walled garden, and says something will follow him for decades to come. I just come and talk to the plants, really. Very important to talk to them, they respond. I come and talk to the plants, he says. They respond. Was it a mild, offhand comment? Yes. Did it have potential for comedy? Definitely. For some, it was just too good. The famously awkward, eccentric prince saying that he converses with his carnations. The British media caught hold of that image and ran. The joke lived on, literally, for decades. There he was, surrounded by the delphiniums and the begonias and the tulips, and he was talking to them. I just said, I don't mean to interrupt, and one of the delphiniums said, please do, for God's sake. <laughs> Poor old Prince Charles, so often laughed at. Much of the humour focuses on the bridegroom's ears, which some people find large. Criticised. Series of newspaper polls reveals a majority of Britons blame the future king for damaging the image of the monarchy. And sometimes worse, ignored. The latest sign that Charles leaves the British torn between disdain and indifference. Well, he's not a gentleman, that's for sure. Honestly, I don't think people care. But that's not the whole story. Every single member of the royal family, whether born or married into it, has had to come to terms with what it means to be scrutinised in the public sphere. They are constantly watched, followed by cameras doing public events. Prince Philip once called himself the world's most experienced plaque unveiler. Many a true word is said in jest. I'm not saying we should feel sorry for them. These are people with a great deal of privilege and, of course, power. No, they may not be able to pass laws, but they do have soft power rooted in their enormous influence. And Charles, he's used his to try and change the narrative, to close the gap between the way he's seen by the public. He comes off a little, ooh, I hate to use the word, douchey, maybe. He wasn't very nice to his wife and isn't popular, generally speaking. 
and the way he sees himself. I feel very strongly after all these years of, of all this that I, I, I wish to be the defender of nature. Charles has relentlessly pursued causes that have led some to call him a visionary, a man ahead of his time, crusading against what he sees as the world's evils, from modern architecture to climate change, whether the rest of the world is ready for it or not. He is such an unintelligent adopter of reactionary causes that he could bring the whole institution down with him. There is no doubt that Prince Charles is incredibly proud of what he's achieved here. What will happen to all those causes on the day Prince Charles assumes the throne? I'm Keir Simmons, and this is Born to Rule. In this episode, we're going to go deep into how Prince Charles has become the man he is, almost despite his royal upbringing and ask whether there's a tension between who he is now and who he must be as king. Episode 2. The Prince Who Talked to Flowers. Prince Charles was born in Buckingham Palace and was three years old when his mother became queen. He had an unimaginably rarefied childhood, hopping from palace to palace with staff attending to his every need. Truly, it's difficult for us mere mortals to understand him. But to at least try, we wanted to speak with someone who's written about his life all the way back to his early days. Legendary journalist Tina Brown. We spoke while I was on assignment covering the French presidential elections. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm sitting in the back of a van in northern France and it's hot. So I may begin to sweat a little and I apologise for that in advance. That's fine. Listen, don't worry. You know, you're on the front lines. I'm sitting in my study quite very happily, so don't worry about it. Tina is famous for her iconic career running some of the world's most influential publications. Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Newsweek, and she's long had deep sources in the British royal establishment. She wrote a bestseller about Charles's late wife, Diana, and for her newest book, The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil, she says she spoke to over a 100 people who are in the know, including several who she describes as having, quote, ongoing or intimate past relationships with the palace. In her book, she describes a young Charles who struggled with being accepted by his own parents. Prince Charles was always a very sensitive and emotional young man and as such was always completely different from his parents and particularly sort of really at, at odds with his father, Prince Philip, who was the definition of an alpha man, uh, you know, hard-charging, unsentimental, pragmatic character and the Queen, who really was a quite an aloof mother, uh, by, both by choice and by necessity. You know, she was a woman of her time and class. I mean, you know, she was away from her baby son for his first two Christmases. She missed his third birthday. She went away on tours for six months at a time. His really warm relationship was with his grandmother, the Queen Mother, not with his mother, and with his nanny, Mabel Anderson, who he was very devoted to. But he was a needy child who always felt that he didn't match up. To most of us, being closer to your nanny than your own mother might seem a little weird. 
But royal families have historically been different. The most upscale of upper-class people have traditionally been more hands-off with their offspring. Queen Victoria was fond of her nine children, but she once wrote that she only checked on them every three months. By the 20th century, bundling your kids off to boarding school was standard posh family behavior. So in 1957, Prince Philip decided that the best way to help develop young Charles into the kind of man he imagined the next king needed to be was to send him to the same schools Philip himself had attended. First, at just eight years old, to the nearby Cheam School, just about an hour from Buckingham Palace, then a very long way away, to a notoriously austere Scottish institution called Gordonston. Rumour has it that the young prince was reluctant about attending this academy with its Spartan routine, but was quickly overruled by the Queen. They shoved him off to, to Gordonston School in Scotland, uh, which the Queen Mother did not want him to go to. She thought he should go to Eton, which was much more about sort of, you know, love of the arts and it was much nearer London and so on. So he was shoved off to this very kind of Spartan boarding school where he was horribly bullied and it left a terrible sort of mark on him. That's a very English public school kind of thing, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, they did things like stick his head down the toilet. They, they you know stuffed his bed with ridiculous sharp things so when he got into it it was uncomfortable he was mocked for being the prince of wales i mean everybody who tried to be nice to him the other boys would jeer and say oh you're just sucking up to the prince of wales he was very very isolated it was very rough is that what can i say hold on this is the queen's son <laughs> this is i mean so british well those schools can be very very uh you know ugly places when they wanted to be particularly then much less so now nbc news anchor brian williams asked Prince Charles about his time at Gordonston in a 2010 Dateline interview. Folklore has it there were two cold showers a day, mandatory? Yes. How did that build character? We certainly did in the mornings. We had to get up and have a run 10 to 7 in the morning, every morning, winter, summer, everything. Prince Charles survived his time at Gordonston and went on to study at Cambridge. After he got his degree, Charles followed in his father's footsteps into the Navy. Being a prince doesn't excuse him from the normal duties and responsibilities of a naval officer on active service. He was very brave and he was much liked, actually, in the Navy. They thought he was respected in the Navy. I mean, listen, Charles has been, uh, given he's an emotional, sensitive person, he's really been a very stalwart character. I mean, he was extremely athletic, you know, very, very good at polo. Uh, you know, he was always jumping out of airplanes in a, you know, in a, in, in a wearing a harness. Prince Charles getting some last-minute instruction before his parachute jump over the channel. And there he goes from about 1,200 feet. His verdict? A great thrill, but apparently the water was colder than he expected. So he certainly wasn't in any stretch of the imagination a wimp. He was extremely athletic, and he always has been, actually. But uh, it was just that he wasn't what his parents wanted, essentially. I mean, the Queen is... Very unsentimental character. She's not emotional. She's not interested in the arts or aesthetics. Charles has got a great sense of design and taste. Really, the Queen regarded him as vexing, exasperating, and if only Charles would, dot, dot, dot. Prince Charles was very different from his parents. Their generation was raised during wartime. They had that classic British stiff upper lip, layered on top with a thick sense of royal duty. And they adhered to the motto... Never complain, never explain. Something that's really key to understanding the royals. 
They are supposed to be above human needs and wants, to have some kind of mystique around them. It makes them easier to revere. As Tina reported in her book, young Charles did his best, but he just wasn't that stoic type of guy. He was more of a romantic, vulnerable and complicated. Qualities that would go on to frustrate his parents even more. I mean, Charles is unfortunately something of a sort of a doleful uh, public mean in the sense that, you know, he, I would say that Charles's motto about himself will be, oh, just my luck. You know, he thinks that he's never really had the appreciation that he deserves. And he's actually right. I mean, he didn't get it from his parents, certainly never had it from the press. So he has kind of a right to feel a bit overlooked is the truth. Of course, that is precisely the kind of attitude that does not play well as a royal. Let's be honest, most of us don't have a lot of patience for an unhappy prince. But the struggle with who he was and who he was expected to be is only part of Prince Charles's story. As he grew up, he started to passionately pursue causes that gave him purpose. And from the start, he was drawn to the natural world. The first hints of Charles's famous interest in environmentalism came in 1970, when he joined the Welsh Countryside Committee, a government agency that was sort of like the Forest Service in the US. With the committee, he worked with volunteers to clean up litter on a small mountain in Flintshire, and he gave his first speech on the environment. Recently, he re-recorded that speech on its 50th anniversary. There is air pollution from smoke and fumes discharged by factories and from gases pumped out by endless cars and aeroplanes. I mean, you know, he, he was so ahead of the curve in wanting to protect the environment in every way. You know, these were his passions long before anybody else were as inter interested in them. And he was constantly mocked in the press for being, quote, you know, liking to talk to plants, as they used to say. Trying to understand the character of the man, his environmentalism, that all sounds, to sort of put a pun on it, quite down to earth. And yet he is at the same time known to love luxury. I mean, he... He, he kind of, he's, he has a certain kind of, uh, he's enamoured with money in a way that hasn't served him well. Well, he's self-indulgent. Look, he's been raised as a prince. How can you not be pampered? But yes, he, he has always liked uh, a lot of pampering by his aides. And I think it's a weakness in him, actually. Certainly one that the Queen had absolutely no time for. You know, she, she, she thought he was overly pampered. She couldn't stand the fact that he, you know, he, there was all of this sort of flummery when he came to stay about where he would stay and how many rooms in the palace he would have. He likes to entertain grandly, like the Queen Mother did, who was a hugely grand entertainer. And so is Charles. You go to dinner uh, with Charles uh, at any of his houses, you'll find, uh, you know, Catherine the Great plates it's a grand scene with Charles, much grander than it is with the Queen. But it doesn't detract from the fact that, you know, he goes out and does his own planting. He trims his own hedges. That's what he likes to do. So he's a kind of interesting mixed character in that sense. If you're scratching your head at all this, don't. Charles is a member of the British upper classes. They're all both wealthy and what they might call outdoorsy types. Hunting, shooting, hiking, gardening... Mud and monarchy rub together better than you might think. Maybe that's where Charles's passion for the environment really started. And today, the fact that he's been talking about it for 50 years makes him somewhat of a visionary. At the time, Charles's good works were met with little to no fanfare. But he was about to do something 
that made people sit up and listen. In 1984, when Charles gave a speech to a gathering of London's most lauded architects, the audience was shocked when he told them he was disgusted by a proposed redesign of one of the UK's most important art museums, the National Gallery. What is proposed seems to me like a monstrous carmel on the face of a much loved and elegant friend. It's a little hard to hear, but it's worth lingering on a bit because it caused a scandal. The prince called the proposal a carbuncle, a literal boil filled with pus. A very British insult. He also invoked the Luftwaffe, the German air force that levelled much of London during the Blitz. You have, ladies and gentlemen, to give this much to the Luftwaffe. When it knocked down our buildings, it didn't replace them with anything more offensive than rubble. We did that. Charles's affront was devastating for the architects in charge of the National Gallery's redesign. They were dropped from the project and their reputation was damaged at the time. This whole episode landed the prince right in the middle of a controversy of his own making. And he was just getting started. A few years later, he put out a BBC documentary called A Vision of Britain, a personal view of architecture. A year ago, His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales shocked the establishment by pouring... It was like a thesis of his thoughts on the built environment. In the film, the prince manages to look as cool as anyone could while shilling for classical design. Seated on the back of a boat, cruising down the River Thames, ruminating on the tragedy that had befallen London's architectural scene. What was rebuilt after the war has succeeded in wrecking London's skyline and obliterating the view of St Paul's in a jostling scrum of skyscrapers. Can you imagine the French doing this sort of thing in Paris, on the banks of the Seine, round Notre Dame? The controversy wasn't just that not everyone agreed with Charles's opinion. It was the fact that he had an opinion at all. The Queen, to this day, has almost never given an interview, not just about architecture, but about anything. Charles was unrepentant. He had a vision of what Britain should strive for, a place to live that reflected his passions for traditional architecture and protecting the natural environment. If people could just see his ideas in action, they would catch on. So he took on his most ambitious project yet, designing and building a whole town from scratch. At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America. NMLS 407249. Equal housing lender. Loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time.
Built on the outskirts of Dorchester, it's Prince Charles's vision of how we'd all live in an ideal world, where businesses are built alongside houses, a new type of community that on the face of it doesn't really look that modern. I think visually uh, for Poundbury, it looks a bit uh, like a model town. It doesn't actually look real. And we get many people saying, uh, do people really live here? And yes, people do really live here. And it is uh, quite a community with lots of things going on. A few weeks ago on a mild day in Dorset, we travelled to Poundbury, a small town of 4,000 people that didn't exist at all until 25 years ago. In fact, it was built from scratch starting in the early 90s, on land owned by the prince and planned to the T according to his and his architect's specifications. We spent a whole day talking to residents and visitors there and got to know its central landmarks quite well. The Duchess of Cornwall pub, Queen Mother Square, the garden centre. The people we talked to in Poundbury knew all about the Prince's vision. They wanted Poundbury to be sort of a, a perfect town um, with nice architecture and some nice green spaces with squares and whatnot. The town was built so that everything you need is nearby. Your job, shops, the pub, all within walking distance. That's the core of the Prince's big idea. Having homes and businesses all together meant residents wouldn't have to rely on cars so much. The other thing is that the, the buildings are all of a certain height, so it doesn't look like a modern city with tower blocks or this sort of thing. The buildings are constructed from natural materials, prioritising what's produced locally, like stone and slate. There's lots of nice green areas, trees. When I think about Prince Charles and his love of nature and the planet and all of that, I can see that he would want that incorporated into the architecture. You can see the Prince's influence all over. Perhaps most in the eco-friendly initiatives, Poundbury is sustainably heated by a biomethane gas plant that turns composting maize and food waste from the local chocolate factory into electricity while making fertiliser for the nearby farms and gardens. Charles comes by a few times a year. And the prince remains hands-on. Around here, they call him the boss. Within five minutes of meeting him for the first time, we were literally talking about the specification of lampposts, tree pits and, um, and algae on the side of buildings and how we got rid of it. I couldn't believe it. Just about everyone we talked to had a story about bumping into him in town. I'd just popped from where I'm living in Poundbury, looking very scruffy, and I went shooting around the corner with washing bags. And as I came around the corner, I looked up and saw that there was lots of men in suits. And then I looked a bit closer and just in front of me was Prince Charles. <laughs> So I just sort of said, oh, hello. And then he looked at me and said, oh, hello, have you been shopping? <laughs> and I just couldn't think of anything else to say. So I said, oh, yes, have a nice day. But I, next time I meet him, I'd like to be um, a bit more prepared. Poundbury has been in the works for decades. And in the beginning, the whole notion of a prince building a brand new town in the British countryside was a pretty wild one. Some saw it as yet another example of Charles's eccentricity, playing around with his little old-fashioned model homes, a kind of Potemkin village. And when the first phase of Poundbury was complete, architecture critics had a true field day. Andy Spain blogged on Arc Daily that Poundbury was, quote, an over-sanitised middle-class ghetto that has a whiff of resignation that there's nothing positive to live for, so we must retreat to the past, end quote. Absolutely brutal. But Charles ignored the critics and soldiered on. 
and it's been largely seen as a success. Today, the project is nearly complete, and thousands of people have moved and built businesses there. You can buy or rent a place in Poundbury, just like any other town. Many of the people we spoke to love it. I mean, the amount of people that want to live in Poundbury is ridiculous. You know, the, the properties don't last very long. I think the community is so strong. It's it just happy to live here. For many, it's an example of how Charles's ideas have been ahead of his time. Poundbury isn't the only experiment Charles has tried on the Duchy of Cornwall estate. He's used this vast tract of land as his own personal sandbox, a proving ground for so many of his ideas. He started his own organic farm on Duchy land and even his own organic company, long before the term was a household phrase. What started out as a modest endeavour to sell organic products grown on his own land has since morphed into a well-known organic food company after the prince partnered with Waitrose, a supermarket chain. Their brand's called Waitrose Duchy Organic. That idea was to produce great British organic food with thought for the environment. So this image that some people have of him, of kind of stumbling from one half-successful, maybe even, you might say, failure a project to another is actually a little unfair because if you don't try things and aren't, if you're not prepared to fail, then you won't be a visionary. I don't think Charles has failed at all. I mean, he's made he's made organic farm, uh, you know, he, he's made the Duchy of Cornwall. He's increased the revenue tremendously by, for instance, starting his Duchy uh, originals. He's actually been a very shrewd marketer of that, as a matter of fact, and he made a very good deal with uh, a commercial outlet that's actually increased the revenue for his foundation tremendously. He turns out to have a flair for kind of sustainable business, actually. All before, you know, there was even a phrase like sustainable business, Charles was doing those things. Poundbury is reportedly scheduled to be completed in 2026, and the future king has plans for another pre-planned community on Duchy land. And of course, the prince has gone on to give speeches, produce documentaries, and give interviews to raise the alarm about climate change. The problem is, tradition wants the monarch to be a passive ruler like Queen Elizabeth who has barely let slip a single opinion in her 70 years on the throne. Charles, on the other hand, well, we know what he thinks. Will he throw away his passions when he becomes king? At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America. NMLS 407249. Equal housing lender. Loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. My lords and members of the House of Commons. That's Prince Charles in Britain's Houses of Parliament in May, reading the Queen's speech, 
standing in for his mother, playing a constitutional role that will be fully his when he is king. Her Majesty's government's priority is to grow and strengthen the economy and help ease the cost of living for families. Her Majesty's government will level up opportunity in all parts of the country and support more people into work. What he is saying aren't his opinions. They are the views of the British government. When he gives this speech, he's literally a mouthpiece, reading a script written for the monarch. That's the deal, the constitutional agreement. The king or queen has power, but doesn't wield it to support their personal causes, no matter how righteous those causes might be. They are there to lend their majesty to shore up the elected British government. The question is, when Prince Charles becomes king, will he follow those rules? Brian Williams asked him during that 2010 interview. Your Royal Highness, are we led to believe that you're going to somehow throw a switch as monarch and stop caring about these issues? What are you going to do with all the passion? I don't know. I mean, it's all in the... It's all in the, in, in the providence of God, isn't it, really? I don't know. Um, I may drop dead long before then. But uh, I'm absolutely determined to defend nature. Not much of an answer. Brian Williams tried again, later in the interview, while they were strolling in the grounds of the Queen Mother's home in Scotland. You, you care so much for all that we see here. Yes. Well... As I say, that's why I've taken so much trouble or minded so much. Why it seems to annoy so many people, but that's the way I am. You keep mentioning that, though. I don't see the British media as much as you do. But as I was saying, don't you think there's a sizable population of people who admire you for standing for what you have and expect you to as monarch more than that? Well, very likely. I don't. It's so difficult to tell, you see, because there's a, I mean, there's a silent majority which doesn't actually jump up and down and wave its arms around. And it seems from the result of our conversation that while obviously things have to remain within you, I'm looking at a future monarch who will redesign the job. Well, we'll see. We're unlikely to get anything more conclusive than that. But of course, out here, outside that royal bubble, we know exactly what the prince's passions are. And we're waiting to see if he'll take a different approach than his mother did. I had to ask Tina Brown what she thought. I mean, think about it. The Queen has been on the throne for 70 years and we don't know what her opinion is about anything at all. We know she likes to turn the lights off. We know she doesn't like wasting money. Yeah, we know she likes to turn the lights off. <laughs> we know she doesn't like wasting money. <laughs> we know that she is, you know... Absolutely uh, following the duty letter of the law. But, you know, we don't really know what she thinks about anything. We don't know what she thought about Brexit. We don't know what she thought about Meghan. We don't know what we don't really think she thinks about anything. Um, we know much more, of course, about what Charles thinks. Well, I suppose he will be a king that we know better than any king who's ever taken the British throne in history. I mean, we've, we've seen so much of him. Well, that is the truth. I mean, there isn't much mystique about Charles because there's nothing we don't know. I mean, his marriage was just trawled and trashed through the media for so many years. And 
he's about to <laughs> look forward to the next season of The Crown on Netflix, in which the marriage to Diana is once again hashed over. He has the pleasure of looking forward to Prince Harry's book coming in the fall. Yeah, what a former British historian and constitutionalist said, don't let light in on the magic. And they let a lot of light in now, right. don't they? Absolutely. Well, you know, we are, Charles has already said too much. When, you know, when we see the crown lowered upon his head, when we see him at Westminster Abbey in his ermine robes, when we see him in all of those traditional time, opening parliament, I think that a conferred gravitas will descend on Charles and more respect, as it were, with the office of king. I actually think that Charles will do a useful job, essentially, of being the one who follows this great, mighty monarch who, you know, who ruled for 70 years. You sort of need that sort of breathing space before the young royals come in. I think he'll also sort of use his convening powers very well. You know, I mean, the Queen doesn't really do that. The Queen doesn't sort of use her convening powers to say, let's have a conference about X. That's just not who the Queen is. But Charles is going to do that. I'm sure that he's going to use Buckingham Palace as a great lure to bring people in he thinks can help the causes that he believes in. And uh, there's nothing like a call from Buckingham Palace to say, you know, His Majesty the King would like you to come, blah, blah. People tend to run, however much they pretend they won't. They want to be there and they want to be sitting at that state dinner. And I think Charles will do quite a lot of changes and modernising. You know, he's talking about opening Buckingham Palace far more than it currently is to the public. I mean, we have all these palaces right now with all these footmen and butlers and, you know, and <laughs> yeomen of the pantry or whatever they're called. And, you know, uh, we can't have that after the Queen, really. I mean, you know, you're going to have to reduce it a lot because I think out of respect for her, nobody wanted to sort of cut that stuff. Uh, but I think when Charles is king, he will reduce it a lot. You know, I think he'll keep enough to keep the mystique going. But I think there are going to be, shall we say, quite a lot of layoffs. Wow. Well, hopefully no one from the palace is listening. <laughs> they may dro drop their scotch if they're, if they're uh, listening and, and hearing yeah. you say that. <laughs> no doubt, as Tina just mentioned, big changes are coming. And as that day gets closer, we're seeing less criticism of the future king. I asked Tina about that. I just, I kind of feel like there is a sense that anybody who wants to stay friendly with the establishment needs to say nice things about Charles. Now, if you want a gong, if you want to be Sir something, you want to be Lord something or Lady something, then criticising the future king is a, a way to make that much less likely, isn't it? Absolutely. I think his reputation is going to get better and better. I mean, he's had some bad setbacks, but I just think that when the Queen dies, uh, there will be a desire to rally to Charles. It seems like maybe, finally, after all these years, Prince Charles may be getting some of the respect he's always felt he deserves. There's one piece of his past, though, that continues to follow him. Here comes the bride. I, Charles Philip Arthur George, take thee, Diana Francis, to my wedded wife. The announcement that Diana had agreed to the divorce she never wanted caught the British public by surprise. He doesn't want her and she certainly doesn't want to be with him. It was never ever going to work and that wasn't Diana's fault. Charles was in love with somebody else. He would like to have married Camilla. It's 4 a.m. The chase is over and so is the life of the most photographed woman in the world. That's next time on Born to Rule. 
Just a note to end our episode, we did reach out to the palace and they did not respond. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you've heard, please give Born to Rule When Charles is King a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Born to Rule is produced by Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Lacey Roberts. Associate producers are Rachel Young and Nina Bispano. Ernie Indrida is our audio engineer. Original music by John Estes and additional music by Brian Robertson and MJ Hancock. Production help by Bob Mallory and associate producer Arnav Jain. Kiko Itasaka and Carol Marquis are our coordinating producers. Bryson Barnes is our technical director. Mina Kothoria is our executive producer. Reed Cherlin is managing editor. Soraya Gage, general manager. And Madeline Harringer, our head of editorial. At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America, NMLS 407249, equal housing lender, loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details.